Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to uh, the next Inspirability Talk. Uh, it's a real pleasure to welcome you all here as part of the Airability Friends and Family and Community. So really excited to introduce you to John, our host, in a second, and our great guest today, Tim Hartigan, who's a really fascinating guy. He's going to talk about two of our favorite things in life, flying and beer. So uh, that should be a really great chat. But before I hand you over to John, I'd just like to uh, just remind everybody about the fabulous spirit of aviation, of which Inspirability Talks is one part, but of course the other half is the Build an Aeroplane Challenge. So everybody, young and old, at home, find what you've got at home, bits of paper, cardboard, sellotape, sticky back plastic, build an aeroplane, video its first flight, upload it to hashtag flyaerability, and you can win a flight with uh, the leader of the Red Arrows. Squadron leader Martin Pert in an airability airplane. So that's a pretty cool prize. So do do take part. But without further ado, let me hand you over to John. Hi, John. How are you? Very good, Mike. Thanks. Good morning, everybody. And uh, this is our second instalment of the Inspirability Talks um, today. Um, I'm looking out the window here. The sun is shining. It is a bit windy. Um, the fuel prices, uh, at least for Avgas, uh, are probably the lowest they've been for a decade. But that doesn't matter because we're going to have a summer to fly with, I'm convinced, uh, hopefully the back end of the summer. Uh, but, um, you know, we can uh, talk about uh, aviation and uh, certainly talk to people who can inspire us all about their careers in aviation. Um, and uh, today we're going to have the US perspective. So last Last time we spoke with uh, Squadron Leader Chris Heems, who had a, a fascinating career through the Royal Air Force. Um, and um, of equal measure, albeit stateside, we have today Major Tim Hartigan. And um, Tim has uh, had a fascinating, fascinating career in the uh, US Air Force. And actually, Tim uh, was introduced to Aerability via Harvey Mathewson, who uh, some of you will know. Um, Harvey runs, uh, amongst other things, our uh, aviation education program uh, at uh, Aerability HQ at Blackbush and happens to be um, a neighbour. So um, uh, it was a it was a lucky catch for us. Um, so uh, a little bit of an introduction, Tim, uh, on you. I've got some I've got some uh, some good facts and figures uh, from your career here. So you're uh, from New Jersey, US, uh, 2000 plus uh, flying hours on on jets T37, T38, F4, F16, uh, and 737, and you've flown in the nuclear strike uh, role, the air to ground role, and the air superiority role during your time on fast jets. Uh, participated in multiple red flag exercises, flown alongside the Republic of Korea Air Force, the Royal Singapore Air Force, and the Australian Air Force, and uh, worked alongside the uh, U.S. Army Special Forces. Um, so can't wait to hear about this. Um, it really does sound very interesting, particularly how you've decided to uh, end your working days brewing beer in Hampshire. Uh, so uh, looking forward to hearing about that as well. <laughs> so welcome. Um, my my first question to you, Tim, is how did you get involved in aviation? What you know, what, what inspired you to uh, want to take up a career in flight? That's a great question, John. I think it um, it started with the fact that 
my parents wanted me to go to college, to university. And in the U.S., uh, you pay for everything. And I, we were a, uh, <clears throat> a very average family and, and certainly didn't have enough money to, to pay uh, for a university education. And I found out about this, uh, this thing called the military academies. Um, we have an Army Academy called West Point, a Naval Academy called Annapolis, and then the U.S. Air Force Academy. And you get a four-year degree, uh, most likely in some form of uh, engineering background. And then upon graduation, you're commissioned in that service. And, uh, and then you go, get to go on, whether it be uh, leading troops on the ground or uh, commanding a ship someday or maybe flying an airplane. And so that was my first exposure to the Air Force Academy. I thought about the three schools and <clears throat> I was into technology, I guess, back as a youngster. And I thought, man, aviation would be great. And interestingly enough, I, in New Jersey, uh, a very large uh, test base, um, Lakehurst Naval Air Station, was very close to where I grew up. And, um, and the jets used to fly over my house and break the sound barrier. This is back in the, uh, <clears throat> in the early 60s. And I used to just look it up into the sky and think, wow, I wonder what it would be like to do that. And um, so when my dad uh, introduced me to the service academies. I thought the Air Force Academy would great if be great if I could get into it. And and uh, thinking about that, of course, I wanted to I wanted to fly. That was the whole reason for going. Uh, of course, besides the fact that the education was paid for by the government, and uh, so that's how I was uh, introduced, I suppose. And um, I will just add that at the uh, when you're when you first start attending the Air Force Academy, they they begin the brainwashing, and the brainwashing is, if you're worth a shit, excuse my French, uh, then you're going to be a pilot. So uh, anyway, <laughs> I wanted to be a pilot from the day you know from the day I entered, I suppose. Well, I'm, I'm I've been very fortunate to visit the um, uh, U.S. Air Force uh, Academy in Colorado Springs whilst whilst I was over in in Denver some years ago, and it's an impressive place, particularly is it the Students' Chapel. Uh, which is this huge, um, you know, wonderful piece of architecture. And if that doesn't inspire anybody, you know, to, uh, to, to uh, you know, devote themselves to the service, I don't think anything will. It's, it's an amazing, uh, amazing place. We can see it on the screen just there. And, of course, uh, your beloved F-16 underneath. Um, so t tell us about your time at the uh, Academy. What's it like? Um, you know, what was day one like all the way through to, to graduation? What's the experience? Well, I will tell you, uh, back to your um, uh, visiting there, the, the Cadet Chapel is open to the public, so you can actually attend the uh, services mm -hmm. there. And it is a beautiful, beautiful uh, building, I suppose, very, very modern. And it's the number one tourist uh, attraction in the state of Colorado. So if you're ever in Colorado, you have to go to the Air Force Academy. Um, so the Air Force Academy, your first year as a freshman, you live under very strict rules. Um, back in the day, it was uh, there was quite a bit of hazing. Uh, I think they've gone to a kinder, gentler uh, route now. But um, the attrition rate uh, in the freshman year alone is about forty percent. So I think we brought in thirteen hundred cadets, and um, you walk at attention. <clears throat> you keep your eyes focused on the ground in front of you. 
you don't speak unless you're spoken to. You, there's knowledge that you had to memorize. And, um, um, you know, it was a it was a tremendous challenge. And that's kind of what interested me. I, I certainly didn't like being hazed. But um, but the challenge of seeing if you could um, get your mind around it and get through it and complete the task, that was that was kind of what I was uh, interested in. And of course, you knew that at the end, you had a great career um, if you could survive. And, and if you were pilot qualified, you got to go fly jets uh, or airplanes. And so there was a lot to keep you going. Although I did want to quit many, many times that first year. Uh, we were allowed to make phone calls on weekends. Um, I think we got two phone calls a weekend and, and Colorado's a long ways away from New Jersey. And I can remember calling my dad from the phone booth at the end of our squadron uh, building. Of course, you had to walk on the side of the hallway at attention, you know, square the corner, go to the uh, phone booth and sit down at attention. And once you get in there and close the door, then you could be normal. And I would call my dad almost every weekend that first year and tell him I wanted to come home. And he would just say, son, if you could just hang in there, you know, it'll be worth it, you know, and nobody can ever take it away from you. And so uh, <clears throat> anyway, he had the wisdom that I, you know, when I didn't have the strength, he had the wisdom to advise mm -hmm. me to stay the course. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, I did spend some some weekends crying in my room, I will tell you. It was it was a pretty tough uh, first year. And once you made it through the first year though, then, then life started to get good. So yeah. uh, I think the lesson in that is that, um, you know, if we can hold our breath for a few minutes, um, you know, the good stuff starts to happen. Yeah, sure, absolutely, and and I think I think Mike might have a video um, to play of some of the uh, academy um, there for us. Um, but how how did you um, what 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 is the system? Um, how, how is the system uh, orientated to stream you? You know, rotary, multi-engine, fast jets. You know, do do you enter the academy? Uh, with the intent of going down a particular uh, avenue or do they decide for you as you progress through or is that just to get graduated and then then that's decided afterwards? Um, there, there is no guarantee that you'll even fly when you enter the academy. Um, they of course want to want to produce well-rounded individuals to serve in the US Air Force and so there are you know, not just pilots, um, but they're intel officers, they're um, combat engineers, they're, you know, um, supply officers. So anything you can imagine there. Uh, um, back in the day, we were in the middle of the Cold War. And so there were there were guys who went on to, to a career in missiles, you know, where they would. Um, and you've probably seen videos or at least maybe seen some uh, some sci fi or you think it's sci fi, but where you, you live in a hole in the ground and you. Uh, you're in charge of perhaps someday launching a, launching a nuclear missile. That would, that would be a pretty tough career, I think. And, and thank goodness I didn't have to go missiles. But um, so um, if you're pilot qualified um, and you graduate, then you do have a slot automatically uh, into flight school. And it was the only sure way to get to flight school. Uh, there are other ways to enter the military in the U.S. You could go... Um, Reserve Officer Training uh, Corps (ROTC) through college. You could, uh, you know, get a degree. Uh, you have to be an officer first of all to fly jets, but in the Air Force anyway. 
uh, you can get a degree and then uh, and then go through some kind of officer candidate program and then get into the Air Force that way. But none of those ways guaranteed you a, a, a flight slot. The only guarantee of a flight slot, if you're qualified, was the Air Force Academy. So um, anybody who, who maintained uh, visual qualification and physical qualifications would, would automatically get into flight school. And then when you went to flight school, you went through a T-41 program, which was flying the Cessna 172. And if you uh, promoted from that, then you went to uh, jet training. And, and back then you flew T-37s for half a year and T-38s for half a year. T-37 was a side-by-side -side jet trainer where you sat right next to your instructor. Um, that way they could chastise you face-to-face, -face, so to speak. And then in the T-38, the pilot, uh, the, the student sat in the front seat and the instructor sat in the back seat. Um, and the, nowadays it's changed because they make a decision halfway through flight school, whether you're going to go to jets or whether you're going to go to um, or fast jets, fighters, or whether you're going to go to uh, transport or tankers. Um, and right. and then if you're going to fast jets, the fighters, you, you still today you fly T-38s. If not, then you'll fly something called uh, I think it's a T-43. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a crew concept airplane where mm -hmm. you, uh, you know, uh, in the training version, there are four seats in the cockpit and you have a, a navigator an instructor and, and so on. So oh, that's a picture okay. of the T-37. You can actually, it, it's kind of like a Mazda Miata, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's just, it's so small, so low to the ground. You can actually climb in right from the tarmac. You don't even need a ladder. Well, well, I think the uh, I, I know that the uh, Canadian uh, Air Force Snowbirds display team still fly them. Um, I mean, it, it, it's it reminds me of the uh, RAF Jet Provost. I think it's the same vintage, had the same the same purpose. So your so your flying training um, started in earnest on the T thirty seven, and then as we can see on the screen here, uh, you, you progress to the T thirty eight if you if you graduate. Um, off is it the tweet they used to call the t-37 yeah the tweet is because it's a 2000 pound dog whistle it, it really <laughs> it was it was deafening if you were anywhere outside the cockpit um on the ramp and the engines were started i mean you had to have two or three layers of ear protection because it was just a very mm. loud wheel it was horrible yeah and and uh, hopefully we got a video of the uh, of the t-38 that mike uh, might be able to queue up for us but that must have been a huge jump from the T-37 up to the T-38, you know, um, supersonic, sweat wing. It is, and there's a, there's an awful lot of attrition in the in the flight training program as well. A lot of it is because of air sickness. Um, I, I was fortunate enough that, you know, I can fly, I can fly airplanes and um, and sleep in the back of a car and, and ride the fastest roller coasters and, and never ever um, touch wood had a problem with air sickness. But a lot of my close friends um got sick and uh and if you can't get over that and and i'll tell you if you've if you've ever been motion sick it's i'm told it's one of the worst sicknesses worst horrible nausea feelings you could ever have and um some people get over it after they get acclimated but other folks they just kept getting sick every time they flew and so they get it treated out because of that and then of course if you don't make through the check check rides and if you don't uh, graduate that way you, you can also uh uh, wash out of, of uh, flight school and and how how, how did the um the, the t38 conversion course um 
uh, operate? I mean, how many hours did you fly on the jet and, and, and where were you doing it? And, and give us a, a flavor of, of what it was like to, uh, you know, to, to, to walk into the jet for the first time. I mean, that's, that's when it gets serious, I guess. Yeah, the, uh, I went to jet training in West Texas, uh, which is very hot and dry, but the weather is great, you know, so you, uh, we didn't lose very many days to weather. So we got, you know, they have a very strict time schedule and it's essentially 12 months to the day, one year to the day when you enter uh, is when your class is scheduled to graduate. So sometimes you're playing catch up because of weather and sometimes, you know, you're ahead of the uh uh, the timeline and so you get to slow down but uh, um, roughly half the hours I think we graduated from flight training with about 180 hours I think a hundred of those hours were in the t38 and um, um, yeah the um, the difference is tremendous in that in the t38 your um, the biggest obstacle I suppose is is trying to stay ahead of the airplane you know, it's similar to when you go from driving an automobile to flying a, you know, a Cessna 172. You know, you in a, in a car when you're going 50 or 60 miles an hour, it's pretty easy to think ahead for the next exit and so on. But, you know, when you start flying in 100 knots, um, all of a sudden things happen faster. And so, um, and then imagine flying around at 300 knots or 350 knots. Now you're having to think, well ahead and that's that was the biggest challenge i think you know making sure you go through the checklists on time make sure you can tune in the appropriate nav aids on time you know stay on the on the uh, uh, the flight path and and you know make, make the altitude gradients when you're doing an approach and you know i mean it's um and then <clears throat> you just saw a picture in the, uh, the video of formation phase of t-38s was just fabulous and so you know you you start out being a wingman and then you progress to being a four ship student flight lead if you will but now you have to think for four airplanes so you have to not only give yourself enough time to do something but you have to give number four enough time right because he's got to do it before any of us so if i'm doing an approach i have to i have to you know sort things out so that number four has time to peel off and land or you know to to slow down and land, and and then I don't overshoot the runway, for example, uh, because I've dropped off number four, and number three, and then uh oh, what about me? Too late, I have to go around or yep. whatever. So it's just the speed at which you you think, and so um, mm. math, maths, as you say in England, we say math, but you say maths. Maths is very very critical to uh, to being a fast jet pilot. You've got to be able to do a lot, awful lot of calculations on the fly. Yeah, and of course, there's no. Uh, certainly, uh, I guess the time you went through pilot training, there was no GPS or, or radar in the aircraft either. So it was purely down to stopwatch, compass, map, TACANs or other yeah. other navigation aids, but nothing that could uh, make it easy. Yeah, I mean, we, we did have a DME, distance measuring equipment, and that, you know, that was a big deal because you could uh, you could see how fast the miles were, were clicking off. So you knew, you know, so you could do things uh, using that. But yeah, it was... Uh, it was a lot of needle ball and airspeed and, and compass points. And, and uh, I think one of the hardest things to learn was point to point flying, you know, doing fix to fixes and, and things. And, um, yeah. and then measure, memorizing all of the instrument flight rules and, you know, how to enter holding and, and, uh, and all of that. So 
Yeah. Uh, you know, instrument flying was a whole nother um, challenge to get through. You know, a lot of pilots were good at the contact phase, which means, uh, you know, hand-eye coordination and seeing things outside. Um, and, but they really struggled with the instrument phase, the instrument flying, especially in a fast jet is, is, is pretty difficult or yeah, can be. Yeah. And, uh, you get to the end of your T-38 phase, uh, and, and then what happens? What, what influence do you have over where you go next and um, what's the process to, 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 uh, you know, move you on to the next stage of your career? So the process is the, uh, uh the whole program um academic tests um t-37 flying t-38 flying contact flying formation flying instrument flying all that is rated evaluated and then the the class is basically ranked from top to bottom uh mind you everyone who graduates you know goes on to a, a an assignment of you know a proper assignment uh but they have it uh toward the end of the program they have what's called an assignment drop and um and every base did it differently, but it was always a very, very exciting um, time because until that night, uh, you didn't have any idea what your assignment was going to be or where you were headed. Did um, you have a choice? Did you put a wish list down? Of, yeah, of you, you did. You did. Um, I can't remember if they told us whether we were um, – FAR qualified or not, or if we just had to guess, I, I, I'm pretty sure they must have told us whether we're FAR qualified. FAR, uh, fighter attack or reconnaissance. Um, and if you're FAR qualified, then you know your, your selections would be those airplanes. You know, F-15, F-16, F-4, A-10, uh, RF-4, um, you know, something like that. Um, and otherwise, you would be. Uh, C-130, C-141, C-5, KC-135, KC-10, the tankers, things like that. Uh, so you put down <clears throat> you put down your wish list and send that uh, to headquarters. And and the at the assignment drop, um, they would essentially call you up and and uh, you would sit in front of the uh, in front of the room facing the audience. And behind you, there'd be a in our in our like I said, everybody's based at a different, but in ours, they had a big slide projector, a slide screen behind you. And so the audience would see what airplane you were going to before you saw it. And so, um, you know, you would maybe tell them uh, that what your goal was. And my goal uh, coming out of flying uh, flight school was the uh, F4 Phantom. That's what I wanted. And, uh, and fortunately, I graduated high enough in the class where I got, I did get my first choice. So I got to fly Phantoms. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. So, uh, so then, so uh, obviously you celebrated uh, a very late night, no doubt, and and then, uh, yeah. then the real work started. So, how how did how does the U.S. Air Force or how did the U.S. Air Force run its um, conversion courses onto the front line, and, and where did you go to do that? <clears throat> so I was in Del Rio, Texas, Laughlin Air Force Base on the Mexican border before flight school, and then uh, when you got selected for um, FAR qualified, if you got a, a, a fighter assignment, then you would go to um, uh, Alamogordo, New Mexico, um, where they had a fighter lead-in training course where we flew AT-38s. And in that program, and that was uh, about three and a half months long, 
you essentially started learning to fire a cannon, uh, drop bombs, fly low levels, um, navig low level navigation, things like that. Do some, uh, you learn some basic fighter maneuvers, some aerial combat, very, very rudimentary, but, um, and then, so we did that. And then you went off to your um, replacement training unit where they would teach you your weapon system. Um, and for me, that was in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, Luke Air Force Base, where I went to fly uh, F-4Cs, the C model of the F-4. And um, and that's when you learn to employ your new weapon system um, as a weapon. Yeah. And and so um, obviously you're, you're converting onto type uh, at this point. So you have to, I assume, you know, familiarize yourself with, with, with the aircraft as, as a you know, as, as the platform, but then you need to operate that aircraft as a as a weapon system or as, you know, um, a weapons platform. How, how does that? And then I guess the other question I've got for you there, Tim, is it's probably at that point that it dawns on you why you joined the Air Force in the first place in, in terms of, you know, um, using it as a as a weapon of war. Um, how, how did uh, how did that um, uh, phase of your career affect you and, and how did the um, conversion to type uh, work? Well, John, there's a, there's a couple of things to, to mention, which hopefully you'll find interesting, but uh, anytime you go to a new airplane or a new airframe, uh, the first couple months are spent in academics to learn the systems. Um, you know, uh, the airframe, the uh, engines, uh, the avionics, um, how to use the technology, I suppose, how to handle emergencies. You do a lot of simulator training. Um, and, uh, and then you start flying it again. You start with basic contact. You know, how do you take off and land in this airplane? Um, how do you learn to navigate? And, you know, what you, the appropriate speeds for takeoff and landing and, and so on and so forth. And then, uh, um, um, yeah, you go through that. So, uh, so that's how uh, that all starts. And then, and then again, the idea is to become, you know, to become a weapon with your machine, to be able to um, implement it and and fly it uh, in a in a tactical scenario, and and how to employ it as a weapon system. Um, in the F four, of course, uh, it is a two seat airplane so we flew with a weapon systems officer it's a navigator who goes on through weapon systems officer training and uh sometimes called the gib the guy in back uh, but you had to learn how to how to crew coordinate how to work together with somebody you know so um at this point when you're actually in the at-38 at holloman where you're in fighter lead in and then in f4 training uh, it's the first time you're not flying with an instructor. Um, I mean, you do occasionally. You have a few flights with the instructor, but most of your flights are, are as a formed crew in the F-4. So you and a training backseater uh, are flying with an instructor pilot and an instructor Wizzo um, on your wing or you're on their wing in, in essence. And so, you know, you go through all of that. And the F-4 training was, uh, was about seven months long. and uh, uh, pretty intense. Uh, all of a sudden, um, they um, there's a, a, a lot of pressure 
on you. The uh, the instructor pilots are um, pretty mean, <laughs> pretty badass, I suppose, because they want to find out if you can handle the pressure, I suppose. And so, um, you know, I can remember getting, uh, I didn't get physically attacked, but I certainly got verbally attacked on more than one occasion, both inside and outside the airplane. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of times where you're not really sure you're good enough to make the, make the cut. And I think that's it's designed that way on purpose. So, but yeah, you once you start, once you start, you know, about halfway through the program, they start treating you like a human being, and all of a sudden you start realizing, wow, this is this is going to be the way of life. And and you inherit, I suppose, you inherit a little bit of arrogance from all of that. Um, if you if you complete it successfully, then you know you think you're pretty elite. You know, I, I would say that that was a big lesson I've learned as I've, as I've aged and matured, especially since, you know, since leaving the air force is, um, um, I was, I was a, a real egomaniac. I was a real jerk, um, back then. And, and I think part of it suited, you know, the mission to think you were, you know, God's gift to aviation, God's gift to women, God's gift to booze. You know, you just you really were full of yourself. And uh, there were some guys that were not like that, that were just as good as. But I would say that the, I was I, I, I was one of the sheep. I, I was a, a very typical um, fighter guy and that I was filled with arrogance and confidence. And, um, you know, I'm just well, I guess in a, well, in a job like that, there's there's. There's uh, no doubt a certain amount of uh, of those um, you know uh, attributes uh, needed. Um, I suppose you, you can't you can't necessarily be a follower, um, but uh, you made the cut, which um, was obviously uh, you know uh, the um, the direction you wanted to go with your career, and then you actually operated that. You lose your virginity to your first airplane. Uh, I mean, not. Not actually, right? But that's the that's the, the sense of it. When you uh, the F four was my first fighter, and and uh, I'll never ever forget that. It was just such a brilliant, brilliant airplane, a man's airplane for sure. Um, Nicknames double double ugly, Rhino. Um, I don't think anything in the world looks as as fierce as an F four, you know, head on when you're when you're looking at that picture down the two intakes and around the radome, and you know, it's just it's just bad. I think if you put put wings on a brick and uh, and add enough thrust, you can make anything fly, right? And so that's kind of was the the F four. Um, yeah, and a real big, quite a big airplane as well by modern standards. Yes, uh, that's exactly right. I think it was uh, almost sixty feet long and uh, almost forty feet uh, wingtip to wingtip. Um, much bigger than the F sixteen, for example. Much bigger than the T thirty eight. Could carry an awful lot of weapons. Uh, and it has had many, many roles in its in its lifetime. Um, primarily, it was designed as fleet defense for the Navy, so supersonic uh, interceptor, um, and it can fly well over a thousand miles per hour. So that was kind of neat. Set all kinds of records when it came out. But most people don't realize it's 1950s technology. Uh, I mean, I was flying it in the 80s, and um, but it was designed in the 50s, which is just so hard to believe that. But but anything we're, we're doing, you know, even the even the lightning was designed 20 years ago, you know. So 
uh, it takes a long time for these designs to come to fruition in terms of uh, building them and, and, and all. But uh, the F-4 in the Air Force back um, in the early 80s was primarily, uh, late 70s, early 80s was, was primarily used for nuclear strike um, and air to ground, uh, air to mud. Um, and uh, nuke strike, you typically would put on one um, tactical nuke uh, on the center line of the airplane. And if you ever went to war, you would be given the, the codes to arm the, uh, the weapon. The weapon is not automatically armed when it's loaded. And in fact, if you, if you drop it unarmed, it won't do anything except cause a hole in the ground, I suppose, where it lands, like, much like dropping a brick. Uh, but if it's, if it's uh, armed, if you have the codes, you can arm it from the cockpit. And, uh, you know, all of that would be uh, um, super secret on how to do all that stuff. But um, we practiced low-level flying to a, uh, you know, to a, to a target to, to drop a simulated nuke. That's what we did. That's what I did for three years almost every day of my life. And, uh, and then the other role is conventional air-to-ground where you, uh, you carried a lot of uh, Mark 82s, which are 500-pound uh, dumb bombs. You just use your the sight um, at the front of the airplane and <clears throat> and tried to drop your bombs on target. And if you were uh, lucky that day, your bombs hit the target. If not, they'd be long or short. And um, and then we had another role uh, which I got to fly. Fortunately, was air superiority, where you took the big uh, fuel tanks, the heavy fuel tanks, off the airplane and you flew it clean, as we called it. Uh, just with missiles um, and we would go defend you know combat air patrol and and uh and that was that was a really really fun mission because um uh, when we did our low levels to time over target to drop bombs it was probably a 90 minute flight <clears throat> which my butt's only good for about 45 minutes so 90 minutes was, was a long time in the seat but uh when you flew air superiority you were lucky if you got 42 minutes because you you know the fuel the internal fuel only would uh, would burn up pretty fast when you're in full afterburner. So we'd fly around for 42 minutes, you know, with our hair on fire, and uh, and then we'd come back and land. And that was that was a ball. That was a lot of fun. Sounds amazing. You moved on to another iconic airplane, an airplane that's uh, yeah. still in service. The uh, the yeah, made uh, Flighty Falcon. I will tell you, Mike, that um, um, there was a price to pay <laughs> to fly the F-16, and the price was I had to go. Uh, I had to go work with the Army for two years, and uh, for an Air Force pilot to go jump out of perfectly good airplanes and run around in the on the ground with your face painted in camo and carrying an M-16, that was not uh, anybody's idea of uh, any Air Force officer's idea of fun, but. Uh, they needed, uh, they still do, they need Air Force pilots, fighter pilots to advise the Army ground commanders how to uh, use their Air Force assets, resources. So I, I had to go do that for two years. But the good news is after doing that for two years, they essentially give you your choice of follow-on assignment. Um, prior to that, uh, whenever you uh, change assignments, it's, it's pretty much uh, potluck. Um, you can put your dream sheet in, but uh, chances are you won't get your top choice. But if you uh, if you take the pill and, and swallow the punishment and, and work with the army for two years, 
then whatever you wanted, if it was available, you got it. And so I chose uh, F-16s and uh, I got to fly those for a couple of years. And that was uh, that was great fun. The um, in my last role in the F-4, it was air superiority, as I mentioned. And um, <clears throat> the only plane that would uh, consistently beat us in a dogfight was the F-16. Um, we could do really well uh, against anything, against F-15s, against other F-4s, um, against uh, F-18s. But the F-16 was just so much more powerful and so much more maneuverable. And so that's why I wanted to go fly it. So um, absolutely amazing, the F-16. Um, uh, without a combat load, the F-16 uh, has a better than one-to-one -one thrust to weight ratio, which means you could take off and accelerate going vertical, going straight up. And, uh, and that was quite a thrill to do that. And uh, also below 10,000 feet, you can sustain, uh, actually you could accelerate under nine Gs, which you know is absolutely amazing. If you can train your body to fly under nine Gs, um, which is a different story because that's hard to do. But if you can do that, then um, uh, you can actually accelerate. And, and that was the reason it was, it was such a formidable foe. The F-16 could just turn circles around anything else. It could, the turn radius was just so tight compared to the F-4, which turned very, very big, slow circles. So um, the F-16 was a lot of fun. And uh, we did uh, close air support. We did air superiority. We did air to ground. I did not do any nuke missions uh with the f-16 but um a lot of fun a lot of fun in that airplane very small in fact <clears throat> when the f-16 is pointed at you you can be inside of a mile and not see it i mean it's like it's like looking at a dot in the sky um you know obviously airplanes are easy to see when you're looking at a plan form but when you're looking at a needle coming straight at you you know like a like the end of a end of a pencil you know you can't hardly see that that dot that black dot is the f-16 and uh that's why it was just so good you could be you could be eating somebody's lunch before they even knew you were there so and it sounds like you took the airplane to quite a few locations around the world as well well i, I was fortunate in that i uh, i got to see the world in the air force uh, in fact, I uh, in 1983 I came to England in my F4. Uh, I flew at an air I flew into an air tattoo at RAF Alkenbury, north of uh, London, and uh, that was the 25th anniversary of the Phantom. Um, and <laughs> I have a funny story. That's when I really gained an appreciation for uh, Brits and how much they love aviation. Um, my airplane was on static display at Alkenbury. And uh, um, the people who came up to me to talk to me about the airplane, they knew more about the history of my tail number than I did. They knew where it had flown, what kind of missions. Uh, they knew what kind of um, <clears throat> munitions I could carry, which I wasn't allowed to, to confirm because it was secret at the time. But with these buffs, they, they knew about it, which was amazing. And I... Um, guys and gals wanted to have their picture made with me in front of the airplane and uh 
<clears throat> you know, in the back of the F4, you've got the uh, horizontal uh, slab, we call a stabilator, but it was uh, angled down. <clears throat> and this one gentleman walked square into the into the trailing edge and cut his head open and had to go to A&E to get stitches. And uh, when he came, he came back and posed for pictures with his mates, was and everybody was pointing to his head, and he was saying that he got bit by a phantom. He had a phantom bite. <laughs> so I just thought, wow, these guys are crazy. But uh, anyway, that I, was think, I think it is definitely true to say that there is. You know, it, it, we do love aviation in the UK, and I think you're right. The kind of diehard guys that go, guys and girls that go to to air shows often know more about the technical details of the airplanes and sometimes of the pilots and the engineers. They did. They did. I got to fly the Phantom uh, in Egypt, um, uh, Europe, as I mentioned before, uh, lots of red flag exercises. I got to fly in South Korea. I got to fly in, in Thailand and the Philippines. Um, uh, F-16, I mostly flew in Korea, but I also flew in Thailand, Singapore and the Philippines. Uh, in the F-16 as well, also Japan, Okinawa. Um, so I got to see, you know, parts of Northern Africa, Europe, uh, Southeast Asia, the Pacific Islands. You know, I mean, it was just, it was just great to be able to to see all those places in the world. Uh, multiple ocean crossings um, in both F-4s and F-16s. I think my longest flight in the F-4 was um, uh, close to 13 hours. Um, and, uh, essentially when you're, when you're crossing a large body of water, like the Atlantic or the Pacific ocean, you are flying with a tanker or multiple tankers, uh, KC-135s or KC-10s. And in essence, for every hour you're airborne, you're refueling. So on a 13 hour flight, you would have 13 air, aerial refuelings, uh, cause you can only fly as fast, you know, even though the, the fighter jets could fly faster, you had to fly you know, as slow as the tanker because you had to fly with the gas. Um, you always had your divert fields, you know, um, uh, close at hand with your map. So you had to know, you know, where if for some reason you couldn't refuel, where was the closest divert field that you could, you know, you could survive. Flying across <clears throat> the North Atlantic, we had to wear uh, poopy suits, which are anti-exposure suits, um, because if you had to bail out, um, your time of useful consciousness in North Atlantic without a, a, a poopy suit, which is not quite a wetsuit, but similar. Uh, without a poopy suit, you know, it might be 90 seconds um, before you would uh, lose consciousness in the cold water. Uh, with a poopy suit, you could last maybe six minutes. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of difference, but it might be just enough time. Normally they would scramble uh, helicopters from Iceland or Greenland or something, or even Northern Canada um uh because hopefully you didn't crash instantly hopefully you knew you were going to have to ditch and so uh before you went in uh they could scramble some some uh, helicopters to meet you or or a c-130 to drop a, a raft or a flotation for you so that was pretty scary flying across the north atlantic in an f4 but um um great experience but i guess one of the the biggest challenges in that start of aviation is tankering. So picking up fuel and uh, just knowing you've got to get it right. There's no second chances. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, you know, I, <laughs> I told you before that I was arrogant and, and uh, 
Um, I, you know, I survived everything, thank goodness. But, you know, I took unnecessary risks, like a lot of guys, I, I suppose. And <laughs> one of the things that I used to do, and uh, uh, connecting, uh, you know, in the in the U.S. Air Force, we um, um, we we don't do probe and drogue refueling. We do uh, boom refueling. So you basically uh, would fly beneath the tanker, and the tanker would would plug in, you know. But you would you'd follow some direction signals on the bottom of the airplane, and you you know you stabilize. And then the, there was a, a boom operator laying in the in the boom pod in the on his belly in the back of an airplane, and he was flying uh, the boom as it was, and then he could extend it. And you know, you would open your air refueling door, and he would put the boom right into your your uh, your slot, and you would take take fuel. And that had its own set of challenges. Um, more than one pilot, you know, failed to make the grade because they couldn't. You know they couldn't fly that steadily underneath a, a kc-135 or a kc-10 yeah. but uh, uh, this will speak to my arrogance <clears throat> whenever we flew across the ocean we would have a box lunch you know so we could you know if you're flying for 11 12 hours you you wanted to have something to eat and i was i was such a clown i would eat my box lunch while i was refueling just to show people that i could do it I was just, that means I had to take one hand, you know, typically you, you've got a, one hand on the stick the whole time and one hand on the throttles because you're modulating the throttles and the stick constantly. It's like, you know, stirring the soup and, and you're modulating one engine and then the other and then the well, other engine. You need to have more power. Yeah. I mean, just you're doing, and sometimes when you're heavy enough, especially if you had three bags of gas on, you'd have to have one engine and minimum afterburner and, and you'd have to be walking in and out of afterburner. You can imagine. Anyway, I'd be doing that and taking a drink of milk and doing that and eating my sandwich. And I'm thinking about it now. I mean, what kind of an idiot would do that in the middle of the North Atlantic where any, any hiccup at all, you know, would cause the death of, of two airplanes and, and multiple crew members. You know, I was, not very smart. <laughs> Not very well, smart. That's what we call the right stuff, isn't it? I guess part of what makes a good fighter pilot is that that little bit of arrogance, and I guess that's kind of one of the uh, the, the prerequisites of the job. Yeah. Uh, so I'll tell you another story that you might find interesting, Mike. You know that if you've seen the movie Top Gun, you know that uh, fighter pilots yeah, have call, call signs, right? Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll give you the history of my call signs. And tell you how, and, and you, you don't just get assigned a name; you get named something because of something notorious that you have done. Okay, so uh, my first call sign in my F four squadron, my very first F four operational squadron, I was called the Sheik. And the reason I was called the Sheik is because on one of my um, early uh, section goes or, or formation takeoffs in the F-4, I was a wingman. I was new to the squadron. And um, <clears throat> you have to have the uh, the entire cockpit memorized because, you know, you might be staring at a target. You might be staring at uh, an airplane that's on the horizon that if you take your eyes off it, you'll lose it. You might be 
flying in the weather, looking right at your flight lead or, or, uh, or looking at your instruments. And so you have to be able to find all the switches in your airplane by memory. And all of the switches have different shapes and different locations. So you can, it's almost like Braille, you know, you can reach around and you can find things. And yeah. <laughs> I was getting ready to do a formation takeoff and, and my backseater's reading the checklist to me and telling me what to do. And in this case, what we would do is pressurize the external tanks uh, so that as soon as you get airborne, uh, there's a squat switch on the, uh, on the landing gear. And as soon as the squat switch is released, then the tanks will pressurize and the external tanks will feed first. And right next to the tank pressurization switch is the fuel dump switch. <laughs> and so we're on the end of the runway about to run up the engines to 80% power um, to check the instruments. And uh, he said, he's going through the checklist and he says, you know, tank pressurization switch. And I, I say on as I flip the fuel dump switch on. And as soon as I run the engine power up to 80%, the, the fuel starts streaming out the back of the airplane. It's, I mean, it's shooting 60 feet down the runway, you know, behind me. And the and the uh, the guys in the tower are looking at us, making sure that our flaps are in the right configuration and stuff like that. And so, the tower, uh, the supervisor of flying, um, basically says, you know, Rhino flight number two, check fuel dump switch. And so, I became world famous for uh, just pitting fuel out the back of the airplane. So they figured I was so wealthy that I had more oil and gas than, than the, the Sultan in Arabia. So they, they called me the Sheik. I like that. I wonder what the connection was going to be, of course, yeah. <laughs> so then I, um, uh, in my next F-4 squadron, I, I, uh, I got a new call sign, and uh, my call sign was Choo Choo. And uh, we were out on a, a, a green bean tour where you take the new guys out um, to the village and you introduce them to the culture. In this case, it was Korean culture. So we'd eat some Korean food and drink some Korean booze and all this kind of stuff. And the, um, the, uh, the Koreans uh, used to make things out of pig iron. And one of the things they made out of pig iron was a railroad crossing gate. And uh, <laughs> we were out in the middle of town and this train came through. So the gates were down and uh, when the when the train came by the gates started to go up and i thought i would act like a monkey so i went out and hung on the end of the crossing gate you know like a monkey and after the gate got about eight ten feet off the ground the iron just bent in half and i broke the i broke the gate and they had a uh a, a gate guard of a, a military uh, sorry a um, korean police officer there and and he he put me in handcuffs and took me off to jail so uh um, at the next naming ceremony, the, uh, the squadron, uh, decided to, to call me Choo Choo. So that became my nickname and my, my next F4 squadron. And of course, you know, I mean, that would, today that'd be pretty serious, right? Pretty stupid to, uh, to do something like that. But back then, you know, we worked hard, we played hard, we flew hard and everybody looked after their own. So then they bailed me out, of course. And, um, because there was a status of forces agreement, so I didn't really have to go to jail or it didn't cost anything. But my, my squadron commander had to come bail me out, and uh, we went right back downtown and commenced drinking again. It was just back in the day. That's kind of that was 
anyway, so I went from the chic to choo choo, and um, that was my uh, that was my second call sign. Well, that's brilliant. I think we got to have these things to look back on stuff that's, as you say, hijinks, harmless, but actually stuff that we can look back on. I think, yeah, we uh, <laughs> we, we enjoyed life where we could. Yeah, yeah. I had two more two more call signs. I'll just tell you very quickly. My third call sign when I was flying F-16s in, uh, I was in uh, Korea again, flying F-16s, and I um, I studied the language. And so uh, I was there for two years, and about a year into the program, I, I actually had it was conversational in Korean. Um, and wow. so they, they called me Gook. <laughs> so that was my call sign, was Gook, because I spoke Korean. And then uh, uh, my last call sign was a was a funny story. I was flying T-38s as an instructor pilot, and uh, and my call sign was Varmint, V-A-R-M-I-T. And that was just out of a story that um, we were assigned rotational call signs out of a um, out of a, a command logbook, I suppose, whenever we flew overseas and uh, one time my, my call sign was varmint, but the Koreans, Korean air controllers couldn't pronounce varmint. So it sounded like vomit. So, uh, anyway, that was kind of a humorous story. And so my last call sign, the one I still have today is, is varmint, V-A-R-M-I-T. So. So like a cartoon character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a, like a small, uh, rodent in the, in the desert well, I didn't, I didn't know you could have four call signs i think in, in the uk i think call signs tend to stick so you did well, well to four yeah yeah they, they it depends it, some of them suit you a lot of them a lot of times you know you get one from your from your last name you know you might be smitty for example or something like that and and even though you might get renamed in a squadron people still will call you by your original one because it was so you know it was so iconic so that that does happen, you know. Obviously, like Maverick and Iceman from uh, from Top Gun, but uh, and and we've got some that uh, that stick. You know, we have Radar, we have Nordo. You know, these are still we have uh, Chainsaw. These are still call signs that you get them once and they last forever. Yeah, pretty pretty great parts of uh, the the flying career, aren't they? Just to uh... It kind of puts it all in context, the fun at the same time. But, you know, of course, they have a practical use as well, don't they? Because, you know, you can very quickly communicate with your friends and colleagues uh, yeah. and who they're talking to. Yeah. Very few are they recycled as well. So, I mean, it's amazing the creativity. And, you know, um, you know, if you know somebody called Chainsaw, there's probably not, you know, there's probably not another one. You know, it's just even though Chainsaw's... Um, Seems like that would be pretty common. It's just this one guy called Chainsaw, you know, or, or, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's some staggeringly uh, very uh, uninspired nicknames like Smithy, as you already say, Jonesy and Taff and things like that. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's always yeah. been. Well, I mean, you got Gopher. Uh, I'm trying to think. We got Sticks. We got Jolly. Um, yeah, obviously there's, you know, Maverick and Iceman, like we've said before, but you have Pony, Mustang, um, trying to think of some others we, we had, we had Wedge, um, Blade, um, 
Wedge makes me think of Star Wars. <laughs> Snake. Yeah, so. So uh, it sounds like you've got some, obviously you're remembering there, some of your buddies over the years. How much of uh, the on-fly community are you still in touch with? Uh, quite a few guys, actually. Um, and it's amazing how how much we've all mellowed, which I think is kind of, kind of interesting. Um, I don't think any of us have continued with the... Um, uh, the arrogance that we had back then, you know, and, and uh, um, yeah, people, we're not, we're not, <laughs> we were, we were, as you can imagine, Mike, we were pretty type A. We had to control every, every little thing, you know, I mean, that's just, that's just the way it is. Uh, I, it, the brainwashing, I suppose, it, 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 I call it brainwashing. I, you know, it's probably conditioning, but you go to the Air Force Academy and you're taught that you want to be a pilot. You go to flight school and you're taught that you want to be a fighter pilot. You're in a, you know, you're in a, your first squadron and you want to become an instructor. You know, you're as an instructor, then you want to become a mission commander. You know, um, you know, you, you want to, you know, you continue want to want to uh, climb the ladder, I suppose. And it's, uh, I, I guess that's natural to a certain extent. Um, and it does take a lot of, you know, a lot of confidence. Uh, you know, I, I say arrogance, but it's a lot of supreme confidence to know that you can succeed if you're called upon, you know, and, and you don't think about the odds. You just think whatever the odds are with you, they're 100 percent. You know, you're going to do it, whatever it right. is. Exactly. What's happens to the other guy, isn't it? You just, you know, driven as individuals, which, again, is, again, is a, a key part of that, that military drive, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what? So obviously your career on the F sixteen. What sounds like you moved on to become an instructor uh, towards the end of your military career? I did. I, I went to, uh, back to a uh, a flight training uh, base, the Air Training Command, which um, for some folks they would call that the kiss of death. They didn't, you know, nobody wants to go to training command. They want to stay operational. The Air Force, the U.S. Air Force is a little different than I think a lot of other services. I know Germany is different. And I think, I think uh, um, British aviation is different as well. Uh, in, in the U.S. Air Force, you, at least back then, I don't know if it's changed now, you couldn't be a line officer for your entire career. Um, they wanted to, they wanted you to become a whole man is what they called it, but they, they wanted you to continue to progress. So at the top of your game, you know, you could have flown for six or seven years straight and be pretty darn good at, at what you're doing. And then they would want to take you out of the cockpit and put you into a staff position, for example and then train somebody else to do what you were doing. So, you know, they didn't want you to, your career to stagnate. Um, and um, we always uh, envied um, uh, the Brits and, and we envied the, the Germans in, in that, you know, you could be completely happy as a, as a captain or a major, you know, just flying the line, meaning doing your, your mission uh, year in and year out and, and getting darn good at it. Uh, you know, kind of like a finished carpenter or a brick mason, you know, after 20 years, you're pretty darn good at what you're doing, right? You know, and so uh, that was great. But in the U.S. Air Force, they they always want you to, uh, you know, to continue and to move on. So I went I went from F-16s uh, to T-38s 
And uh, even though I wasn't excited about the uh, the assignment, I got there and it turned out to be one of the best assignments I had in, in the Air Force. And it was because the um, the young students, um, they're good, right? Because they made it through T-37s. They're obviously uh, going to go to uh, fast jets, most of them. Um, so they were competent, but they were also eager to learn. They were very excited. Um, and they thought um, they thought the world of, of me and, and other um, fast jet flyers who came back to instruct. So uh, it was it was very rewarding to do that, to be in that environment where it was so positive every day, day in and day out. Great attitude, you know, great excitement. Um, and we got to fly, you know, the, the T-38, when you have a couple of thousand hours in, in jets, you could fly the T-38 like, well, I suppose like you, you could ride your bicycle or something. I mean, it was just part of you. You could, you could fly it, you know, you could max it, you could accelerate, you could stop it on a dime, you could do rejoins and, you know, tuck right into another wing, just, you know. Um, and and when, when a couple of instructors went out together, we used to have so much fun. And um, again, probably taking chances we didn't need to take, but, you know, we, we could just fly the airplane right to the edge. Uh, and max out its capability every every time. So it was it was it was great fun. The T thirty eight is T thirty eight. Back then, it didn't have you know crazy avionics. It was it was all you know uh, gyros and compasses, and so it didn't take any time at all. You know, when you're flying with a GPS or or INS inertial navigation system, we had back in the F four. It would take you 40 minutes to to align the gyros before you could you know you'd start engines and you sit in your parking slot for 40 minutes waiting for the gyros to line up so the inertial navigation system um which was based on the movement the drift of the compass over the earth you know that was that was kind of the whole idea of an ins uh nowadays you know there's gps which certainly doesn't take any time either but the T-38 was so cool, I could start the engines and be at the end of the runway ready for takeoff in about six minutes, you know, including taxi time. So it was just brilliant. It was just it was just amazing. It was so simple. Also, it's quite a light airplane as well, isn't it? Very, very light. Uh, in fact, if I could, I could choose an airplane to have in my, in my own personal um, hangar uh, at the end of the runway, it would be a T-38 because it had pretty long legs. You know, I could fly 600 miles um, in, in under an hour. Well, that's not quite true, but I could fly 600 miles in, in under two hours. And uh, and um, so you go anywhere and didn't have a lot of room for baggage. So you couldn't take a lot of passengers or luggage, but you could, it's also fully, uh, fully aerobatic. So you can do snap rolls and loops and, you know, I mean, just, just really, really a neat thing. In order to do a loop, loop though, in the, uh, in the T-38, you needed about uh, eight to 10,000 feet. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's quite a snappy airplane, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, but, but again, uh, 1960s technology, a good inherent basic design that's still, you know, in service today. You know, we we see them quite regularly, don't we? As astronauts use them for, yeah, uh, and, uh, for mineralization training and staying current. Yeah, and very very basic jet engine. So the jet engines were very easy, are very easy to maintain. Um, you know, newer jet engines have 
so many more parts and they're so much more complicated. But the T-38 just is the simplest of jet engines. In fact, the jet engines of that were designed to be throwaway. They were designed for cruise missiles. Cruise missile, use it once and it's gone. So, uh, um, yeah, very, very simple, simple engines. But what a great airplane. What so well, much fun. I see that image there. It's just, uh, I think that old adage, if an airplane looks right and flies right, I think the T-38 definitely fulfills that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I did want to mention one thing about the F-16, going from the F-4 to the F-16, Mike, which uh, people may find interesting. In the F-4, the visibility, cockpit visibility was absolutely atrocious. You know, the uh, the rails come right up to, to here. You know, you can raise the seat all the way up and you're, and you're hitting the canopy, so you, you can't get much higher than about right here. And so, you know, in order to see anything in the F-4, you have to roll up on a wing to look down. But in the F-16, you know, the canopy rails are down below your shoulders and you're sitting on, you know, your wings are far behind you. So you can actually look down at 45 degrees and see the ground. And uh, it, it's literally like sitting on the end of a pencil. It was just so, so cool. The, the other thing is that the, uh, the F-16 is so small that the cockpit, it's almost like you're strapping it on. You know, there, there's one, one place for your right leg to go in. There's one place for your left leg to go in. You have to ease yourself down into the cockpit. And if you're a big fella, you cannot fit in the F-16. Um, so it's literally like, um, like strapping on a, you know, a, a pair of pants, you know, or tights. It's, it's, it's just like that. And, and you're wearing the F-16 like skin. You strap yourself in as tight as you can to the seat. It reclines at 30 degrees to help you uh, sustain the G forces and you wear it, you know, like a skin, a second skin. Whereas the F-4 was a lot more like a, a suit of armor. It was a bit clunky. You know, there's room around inside, and you actually might hit one side or the other in the cockpit. In the F-16, you you know, it's just like a glove. It's, you know, skin tight. Um, beautiful, beautiful concept. Did you ever do any display flying or uh, sort of demonstration flying? Because the F-16, uh, as we're talking now, I'm just going to put in the background a, uh, some film of the, uh, the, the F-16 being displayed. Inside, it looks like quite a ride. It really does. Yeah, if you want to show just the first uh, two minutes of that F-16 aerial demo, um, you know, the, where the guy makes the face at the camera, showing, again, a little bit of arrogance or confidence, uh, you know, that's that's an example of doing a vertical takeoff, and that's uh, really a very, very cool thing to see. The, uh, th this would be an aerial demonstration, and the, uh, the, the jet would be clean, meaning that there's no external tanks, uh, there's no munitions on board, so it's it's full of internal fuel, but it's very, very lightweight, which means it's airborne at about 600 feet down the runway. Um, and by the end of the runway, it's over 400 knots. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing. Um, and then he'll, he'll basically pull up and you can watch the runway go disappear into a postage stamp behind you. We used to be, we used to do unrestricted climbs and uh, I did check flights, uh, but not any aerial demonstrations. A check flight, you would basically go out and put the airplane through its paces uh, clean. 
So you would go out and fly at nine G's and here's, here's him going vertical straight up, which is just, that's crazy. He's doing a Cuban eight. Um, yeah. Uh, positive G's are the key to all of that. You know, you're always, always, uh, keeping the, the pressure on the, on the seat of your pants. Uh, and as long as you do that, then pretty much you can maintain control of all of everything that you're doing. Yeah, it just looks fabulous. It's kind of one of those airplanes, I guess. It's like the ultimate aerial sports car. Yeah, yeah, definitely like a like a Mazda Miata or a or a Corvette, I suppose. Just you know, although the Miata's pretty much underpowered compared to the F sixteen, but uh, yeah, just brilliant. I mean, you can see how how much visibility uh, the guy you know if you're sitting in that cockpit, how much you can see. It's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Look at yeah, that. Yeah, actually, that shows that really well. Just uh, yeah, if he turns his head in any direction, he can you know he can see anything. So, whereas in the F four, if something was behind you, you know you you actually had mirror a mirror right above you. That was the only way you could see something directly behind you. Because if you turned around in the F four, you're looking at bulkhead, you're looking at the back of your ejection seat, and then you're looking at steel, so you can't really see anything. So, pretty cool. So talking of other loves um maybe you could tell us about how you ended up in the uk but obviously one of the things we talked about earlier in the uk is your uh, we talked about beer a little bit earlier uh and mm. beer has become a part of your life but before we yeah, talk about that, how you ended up in the uk i will just tell you that it's a, probably a good thing that i'm not flying uh, f-16s or f-4s right now because i can't think that fast anymore and and my reactions are much much slower, you know. I mean, it really is a young young person's um, game, if you will. You know, uh, young people uh, their brains are quick, their hand eye coordination is quick. So if you you know if you're flying, if you're playing video games or if you're flying uh, simulators on your computer, um, that's a good indication. Right now, I could probably I could probably do okay in a Cessna. I'm not sure I could do okay even in a T-38, but uh, I'd have to do all my thinking. I'd have to do a lot of chair flying before I would go fly a, a, a real sortie. So, um, but- well, you, have to, you have to come along with Harvey. Uh, Harvey's got his uh, pilot's license now. So yeah. come and fly one of the, the airability airplanes with Harvey. That would be brilliant. I will tell you though that um, the, the, the I've only, uh, well, aside from my T-41, which was my initial, Cessna training. I've only a handful of uh, of hours in the uh, in, in any light aircraft, and um, one of the things that scares me to death in a light airplane is um, how the wings are bolted on. I always have to you know look, and then when I'm flying, my mind goes to crazy places like you know making sure that the the struts are going to hold up and that the bolts are still good and all that stuff in the F. You know, in fighters I flew, I had an ejection seat, so I felt pretty safe with an ejection seat. And and of course, in light aircraft, we're not even wearing parachutes, so man, that's scary. Yeah. I don't mean to scare you all. You all, you all, probably trust all that stuff, but uh, you know, it's kind of like when I fly. Barbers we know, aren't we? I guess it's kind of like when I fly commercially. You know, you put your hands in, in uh, you put your life in somebody else's hands. That's a scary thing. Right. So, yeah, luckily, I don't have to think that far ahead or that fast um, brewing beer, but I, uh, I'm a, a lover of craft beer. Um, I, I uh, started a small brewery over here uh, quite accidentally. 
Uh, I have been retired for a few years and my wife uh, is still working and, and she works for a large IT company. And uh, we were offered several places in the world where we could go. And we thought we would love to visit um, and live in England. Um, we have two old English sheepdogs. So we wanted to make sure that uh, we went to a place that was dog friendly. And obviously England is such because you can take your dogs uh, into pubs when they're open and, and uh, everybody around here seems to have dogs, which is great. And so I came over here and I brought my, uh, I brought a souped up homebrew kit with me and that was gonna be my hobby. My job was taking care of the dogs, making sure my wife was free to work. And then my hobby was gonna be brewing beer. And I started, uh, uh, sharing my brews with uh, a couple of the lo local clubs I run with. I'm in a running club called the Hash House Harriers, and they started really enjoying the beer, and then people started spreading the word, and then I had people uh, asking me to brew for parties, and I brewed for a wedding, and um, and then I got my commercial license, and, and uh, I've been selling beer for about a year and a half now. Um, still brew on a very small system. We make 30-liter batches. Um, and we brew about, uh, they're, they're my two brew dogs right there. There's my system. Um, and, uh, so <clears throat> I brew between 200 and 300 liters a month and we pretty much sell every drop of it. And we brew, uh, world style beers. So I brew Belgians, Belgian triple farmhouse ales, Belgian wits. I brew American IPAs, uh, some nice, um, stouts and porters and, um, you know, make German beers as well. I make a, a Weizenbach. Um, so just, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm, <clears throat> I even brew an extra special bitter uh, in an American style. So it's the closest I come to an English, an English bitter. But um, the uh, uh, people ask me, what's, what is an American style beer? Generally, we serve our beer a little colder. Uh, generally, it's a little fizzier, so it's kind of between, but it's got big flavor. So it's not like your lagers here, but it's not like your real ales here either. So it's kind of in between uh, a real ale and a, and a lager. So we, uh, we bring people together. We bring uh, real ale and lager drinkers together. And um, at least in our village here, people of both camps really like it. The lager drinkers like my beer and the real ale drinkers like my beer. So that's kind of a, that's my claim to fame. So that's my dog, Winston, who uh, keeps a close eye on the brew when it's happening. Well, I think craft beer is such, it's had a real sort of, uh, uh, real great in popularity over the last 10 years or so, isn't it? And I, and I think the fact that you can really regionalize the beers as well. So if you find particular hops that you like that are grown locally or particular ingredients yeah. you can really make it you can almost use the terroir to use a, a wide term that's right that's exactly right uh something else uh, mike that is different about our beer is they're generally a higher alcohol a higher gravity so uh an american session beer is about five and a half percent um and we brew uh, i do i do brew some uh, i have a small town which i call a small town series of beer which which i call um English session beers, and they're under four percent. They're about three eight, three nine. Uh, but most of my beers are in the six, uh, six to eight percent range. Reach phone brewing. Yeah. What's your 
you know, it sounds like you brewed quite a few over the years, different trying out different recipes, which I guess is half the fun. Which has been your crown of glory? Which one are you most most proud of? Which one's been the most popular? Well, the most popular beer that we sell is something called the Carolina American Pale Ale. Um, uh, it's six and a half percent, and it's um, in some places you might call it an IPA, but here um, I, I just call it a pale ale because I do make an IPA that has even more hops. But <clears throat> there's got a big hop bill, but it also has a big grain bill, so it's very very balanced. So it's a little bit uh, a little bit hoppy, but also a little bit sweet. Uh, Carolina. Carolina Pale. So I guess under these periods of lockdown, uh, it's kind of tricky for you to supply beer. But when we spoke the other day, you did mention that you'd be doing doing some home deliveries in your local area. <clears throat> we are. We deliver in the Basingstoke area, um, a little bit in Andover, uh, North Waltham, Dummer, um, yeah, Hatch Warren. <clears throat> yep, we um, – because – the government decided even in the beginning that um, uh, off license was essential business and they are allowing deliveries. So we decided that we would um, cater to our, our clientele. So we do, uh, we're actually doing, um, we're filling growlers. A growler bottle is a refillable flip top bottle. We're filling uh, growlers with live beer. So live draft beer fills. Um, right now we have, uh, just ran out of Carolina until next week, but I uh, on tap I have the Dummer wheat called the Dumb wheat. It's a it's a six percent uh, German Weissenbach, and then I have um, All Saints extra special bitter, and then I'm about to put on um, one of my session beers, a Small Town IPA, which will come in at uh, three point eight percent. It's a it's a very very hoppy uh, beer if you like your if you like your a very fruity hoppy nose and then then that's the beer for you well they sound fabulous what i what i would ask on behalf of all of us is put a few bottles aside of each type that you as you make them and we'd love to have an airability beer tasting oh that'd be fun yeah that'd be fun we could do that we could do that and we could i could donate the beer and we could use it as a fundraiser for airability done that's a deal that sounds good to me oh that would be brilliant i would love to do that I think what what most aviators love at the end of a, a fun day's flying is to wind down with a beer at the end of the day. So, <laughs> At least one. <laughs> yeah, when we get out of lockdown, we'll hold you to that. Let's get together. We can enjoy enjoy tasting some of these beers with you. So thank you. Oh, I would look forward to that, Mike. That would be brilliant. Well, Tim, I think that's been a, a really most enlightening and fun chat. Um, as I say, to talk about airplanes and beer is a – it's a real privilege. While we can't fly, talking about it is a very close second. Yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you so much for your time. And You're uh, really yeah, very much part of the Airability family, whether you like it or not. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate Harvey introducing me to it. Uh, I love your program. And uh, I can't wait to go uh, see some more of the programs back in person once this lockdown is over. Absolutely. Well, thank you, oh, Tim. There's nothing wrong with doing it this way, is there? This this works pretty well. Well, it's a very good way that we can uh, we can chat and talk and, and get together easily and share it with lots of people. So, uh, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. That's so right. Exactly right. Brilliant. Okay, Tim. Well, uh, we'll leave you to it. We'll leave you to get on with uh, the. I don't sure when your next brew date is, but uh, we look forward to trying those beers. 
and uh, thanks for your help and your support. And we really enjoyed today's chat. Thank you. You're very welcome. In the meantime, make sure your hands continue to fly. Absolutely, Tim. Thanks very much. Cheers. Take care. And, uh, to all our viewers, thanks for joining us today. And just a reminder to go to the Airability website where you can look at the spirit of aviation in more detail and look at uh, the virtual airability page as well, which shows uh, the list of talks coming up and some fun activities you can take part in as well. And of course, there's a link where you can donate to support airability as well, which is absolutely vital uh, in, these, uh, in these crazy times that we're living in. So until next time, which is actually this Friday, where we hear from uh, Air Vice Marshal Gary Waterfall, retired, who's going to talk about flying the Harry.